This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Father Brett Kroll and is from the Feast of Christ the King 2017. Tim Winton is uh, an author in Australia. He's one of Australia's most celebrated novelists with more than a dozen best-selling books, several literary prizes, and he is a Christian. And he tells a story of a pivotal moment that was early on in his spiritual journey, the time when he first saw the love of Jesus at work in a normal, everyday Christian who is simply trying to love Jesus, sorry, trying to love as Jesus did. So here's the story. So Tim Winton's father was a policeman. He'd been in a terrible accident. He'd been on his motorcycle and had been hit by a drunk driver. And after weeks in a coma in the hospital, he was finally released and sent home. Little Tim said, my father was sort of recognizable, but not totally my dad. Everything was busted up, and they put him in this chair. As a five-year-old, I was terrified. Now, Mr. Winton was a big man, and Mrs. Winton had a great deal of trouble bathing him each day, which was necessary for his recovery. And there was nothing that little five-year-old Tim could do about it to help. News of the family situation got out into the local community, and shortly afterward, his mother heard a knock on the door. And since this was in Australia, I'm, I'm sure when she opened, he said, G'day, and that's as far as I'm going to venture on my Aussie accent. A man was standing there whose name was Len Thomas, and he said, I've, I've heard you'd have had trouble in your family. Your husband's not well. Is there anything I can do to help? So Len Thomas was from the local church. He had heard about the family's difficulties, and as Tim Winton later recalled, he just showed up one day. And every day he would carry my dad from his bed into the bath, and he would bathe him until he had recovered. Tim remarked, this was not the sort of thing you were used to seeing in the 1960s in Perth, Australia. What Len did for the Winton family was a simple but profound act of love. It's the kind of love that Jesus had for the hurting, the sick, the multitudes. It's the kind of love that he wants us to have for others. Love that is put into action like this is called righteousness. And God loves righteousness. Indeed, it is the foundation of his throne. Today we are celebrating Christ the King Sunday, and we remember that already, even now, in this time, in this history, Christ is at the Father's right hand. He's reigning in glory, though we do not yet see him reigning in glory. He is at the Father's right hand in power. And today in particular, I want us to focus on those words that we prayed earlier in the psalm this morning, penned by the psalmist many, many years ago, but were true then, are true now, and will be true forever, that righteousness, together with justice, is the foundation of God's throne, of his kingdom. God loves righteousness. And I pray that all of us will leave here today hungering and thirsting for righteousness. As Jesus taught in the Beatitudes, blessed are you when you hunger and thirst for righteousness. I pray that each of us would, would leave saying, I love righteousness. I love that our God is righteous, and I want to be more righteous too. But even as I say that, I know that some of you are less than enthused. 
saying, righteousness, really? And what is that? Some of you have even deeper misgivings about the word, and there are reasons for that, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But first, what, what is righteousness? Righteousness is a right relation to God and right relation to others. It's really pretty simple to understand. Or another way to think of it, Jesus said that the greatest commandment is to love God, and then the second that is like it, and actually just the flip side of it, it's the same command, is to love others. To love God, to love others. Righteousness is what happens when you put that love into action. Righteousness is the result of rightly ordered love put into action with a special emphasis on caring for the needy and the small or as we hear in today's gospel reading, the least of these. So it's just one other illustration of righteousness. I'm going to read from from Job. Job was a man that God himself called upright and blameless, which are synonyms for righteous. And here's what Job said about himself, why he earned that name from God. Job says, when the ear heard, it called me blessed. When the eye saw me, it approved, because I delivered the poor who cried for help. And the fatherless, who had none to help him, the blessing of him who was about to perish, so the dying, came upon me, because Job was there visiting him in his illness. And I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind. I was feet to the lame. I was father to the needy. I searched out the cause of those who were strangers to me. And I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made them drop his prey from his teeth. And he goes on. And there are many other passages like this that describe for us righteousness. The Psalms and the prophets are saturated with the Word. It is a rich theological theme throughout the Hebrew Scriptures that continues on into the New Testament. Now it is true that the New Testament more clearly emphasizes that righteousness is the result of knowing God, the effect of having a saving relationship with Jesus, not the cause. It works like this. Faith comes first. As John says in his epistle, we come to know and trust the love that God has for us. When that happens, when we realize God really does love me, it produces in us a love response back to God. And those who truly love God, it is only natural. You don't have to try. It just happens. That love overflows to the people around you, and you love others with the love with which God loves them. And when that love becomes action, we call it righteousness. And because it all grows out of God's love, this righteousness isn't picky. It leads a person to love those that they would otherwise not, and to love those that the world around them would completely pass over, as we saw in the Matthew reading today. The remarkable surprise that is simmering all throughout the gospel story that we heard read today is that when the wicked passed by the small and the needy, the least, as they were called, it was the king whom they had passed by and disregarded. And likewise, the righteous ones who loved those the world would not, they found out that it was the king himself who was the recipient of their righteous deeds. 
It is this righteousness that is the foundation of God's throne and the heart of His kingdom. It is this righteousness in us that is so pleasing to God when He sees it because it comes from His own heart. And as often as the Bible commands us to do righteous deeds, as often or if, if not even more often, the Bible is singing the praises of God who Himself is righteous and who first loved the small and the least and the last. So another psalmist says, gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and He rescued me. Do you know that about God? That He loves to help the lowly? All you have to do is call upon His name, the name of Jesus, and then to trust that He has helped you. He is helping you now, and He will help you, and He will not leave you. That is our God. He is righteous. Another well-known example of love put into action is Mother Teresa. Perhaps you knew it was coming. I can't go three months without talking about her. She is the epitome of righteousness. Everything she did was motivated by a love for God that was pure. And everything that she did for others was similarly motivated by a pure love for them, a simple desire that even the poorest of the poor would know and experience the love of Jesus, and it was her job to bring it to them. If you have some kind of revulsion or recoiling at the word righteousness, I just want you to know righteousness is actually attractive when you see it fleshed out and lived out. Everybody loves Mother Teresa. And she was motivated by this text, this Matthew 25 gospel reading that we had today. This very passage was the inspiration for her mantra as she said, to love Jesus in the distressing disguise of the poor. That is how she understood her whole ministry. In Matthew 25, we see a vivid description of righteousness. The scene is the final judgment, and righteousness is so central to the kingdom of God that righteousness becomes the deciphering factor of who belongs in that kingdom and who does not. It is righteousness that is the litmus test. And there is a list, six ministries we'll call them, six things that the righteous did, six kinds of things that they did that were listed out four times in the passage. Did you notice it was four times? Because first Jesus said to the righteous, you fed the hungry, you gave water to those who were thirsty, you sheltered the wanderer, the stranger, you clothed the naked, you visited the sick, you visited the prisoner. That was the first time. They respond back a second time. When did we and then they list out all of those things. The third time, he says to the wicked, he says, you did not do these things, and he lists them all out. And they respond a fourth time, when did we not feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, etc." So the fact that it's listed out four times tells us that both Jesus and then Matthew, who's writing this gospel, wants to make this easy for us to memorize or to understand. He wants a concrete, vivid picture of what is righteousness etched on our minds and in our hearts. It's so easy that after studying this passage, I can rattle it off for you without having to look at my notes. Feed the hungry. Uh, I was just kidding. Feed the hungry. Give water to the thirsty. Shelter 
the, the stranger, clothe the naked, visit the sick, and the prisoner. I couldn't have done that two weeks ago, but now I can. Jesus wants us to know from this passage what is righteousness. And those who do these things and other things like them, that is to put love for others into action. And when we do that, it is evidence. It shows that we have love for God. So as Christians, we don't need to be afraid or hesitant or skeptical of righteousness and even what I said earlier of, of hoping that you would walk away saying, I want to be righteous. Some of you said, I don't feel comfortable saying that. You don't have to be uncomfortable saying that. But perhaps the reason that you are is for, for two perhaps misunderstandings, I would call them, around righteousness. They are related to corrections that the New Testament itself makes against works righteousness and self-righteousness. And works righteousness and self-righteousness, those are problems. That's why the New Testament, Paul and then Jesus also, speak against those. But we have to be careful that in correcting an error, we don't go so far the other direction that we make a whole new error. Because if you look at the entire scriptures, the greater preponderance of the occurrence of righteousness is positive. It's love righteousness and do righteousness. So with works righteousness, this idea that we could or that we have to earn God's love through our good deeds, that's what Paul pretty equivocally in, in Romans 3 and in Galatians says, that's not how we're saved. We don't have to earn God's love by what we do. It's like when I give a gift to Julie, it's not to impress her. It's not to earn her love. It's simply to show mine. I think once I impressed her, it was a, a necklace of, of pearls, pearly necklace. But I don't have to earn her love when I give her a gift. It's out of the freeness that I just want to show my love because I have the security I don't have to earn. I'm not waffling back and forth in this anxious place of, does she really love me? Is our relationship secure? No, it is. So it's the same with God. Those who know God's love for them, you know that that relationship is secure. You don't have to do anything to earn his love. Now you're free to pursue works of righteousness, and it isn't works righteousness. I think we get confused because the word righteousness is in there, right? Pursue works of righteousness out of the freedom knowing that God loves you, and it isn't works righteousness. There's no conflict between saving faith in Jesus and then doing righteous deeds. In fact, the Bible's really clear. The one leads to the other. And similarly, let's talk about self-righteousness. We are very concerned. We don't want anybody to think we're self-righteous, which is why you'll hear people say things all the time, well, I'm, I'm not this or that, fill in the blank. I, we, we are afraid to speak positively about ourselves because we're so afraid of being called self-righteous. Now, Jesus vehemently opposed self-righteousness. He did. So we're right to have a certain caution and correction here. In Matthew 6 and in 23, he speaks to the religious leaders, and he says very clearly, you do your righteous deeds to be seen by others. It's a show so that you get honor. It's really about you. That's self-righteousness, and he condemns it. But notice what he does not say. He doesn't say, so don't do righteous things. He simply says, don't do them for yourself. Don't do them as a show for others. The problem in the equation is not the righteousness side of the equation, it's the self side of the equation. 
But we are to love righteousness and to do it. And if your, if your righteousness is motivated by love for others rather than the need to justify yourself or prove yourself to others, if it's simply motivated by loving the person right in front of you, then you can pursue righteousness with joy and abandon. Because God loves righteousness. He wants us to love righteousness too. So then what shall we do? How shall we live? How shall we respond to this high call of righteousness? Well, Jesus, in Matthew 25, perhaps one of the most important things He wants to teach us this morning is that to do righteousness means to love the small. Righteousness loves the small. The word there that is translated the least of these, the word least, could also be translated small or little or littlest. And yes, it could have to do with the idea of significance or not much significance, but in other contexts, it's used to just simply talk about an amount, not much, little, small. It's used to describe the very smallest plants and smallest animals. And if we go back to that list of those six ministries, of feeding the hungry, giving water to the thirsty, clothing the naked, welcoming the stranger, etc., if we go back to that list, we realize these are small things aren't they? All of them very doable. Jesus didn't say, in order to be righteous, you must heal the sick. Now, that's part of his ministry. He does that through his servants, but he doesn't say to everyone, in order to be righteous, you must heal the sick. He says, visit them. And some are called to liberate the captives and set them free, but he doesn't say to everyone, in order to be righteous, you need to set the captives free. He just says, go visit those who are in prison. Share a meal with the hungry. Share a piece of clothing with those who are in greater need than you. But you don't have to end worldwide poverty. He doesn't say that's what you need to do to be righteous. If we look at that list, we'll also notice something else. It's not a very spiritual list. And here's what I mean. On that list are things that are simply basic physical human needs and perhaps a few basic emotional relational needs. You don't have to have great theology to understand the things in that list. And it shows us that God has a high value. He really cares about taking care of other people, beginning with their most basic human needs, food and water, shelter and clothing, companionship in suffering. Of course, this is not to the exclusion of spiritual needs. Jesus himself ministered both to spiritual needs and physical needs. But the point is, it's also not to the exclusion of physical needs. John and James, in their letters to the church, they say, look, if you're walking by someone who's hungry and naked, and they're right there in front of you on the ground, and you say, have a great day, I hope you stay warm and well-fed, and then you keep on going, they said, That's, those are empty words, and it's useless. Love would never do that. Love would take care of those most basic physical human needs. And often, meeting more basic human needs leads to the opportunity to then minister to the spiritual needs as well. So recently, I was reading a story about a man who, prior to this story, he had no interest in spiritual things. Now, he was neighbor to a Christian, and these neighbors had a casual neighborly relationship. They were not great friends just neighbors, talked over the back of the fence, borrowed lawnmowers, that kind of stuff. 
Then the man who was not a Christian, his wife was stricken with cancer. Three months later, she died. And here's a part of the letter that that man wrote afterward. I was in total despair. I went through the funeral preparations and the service like I was in a trance. After the service, I went to the path along the river and walked all night. But I didn't walk alone. My neighbor, afraid for me, I guess, stayed with me all night. He didn't speak. He didn't even walk beside me. He just followed me. When the sun finally came up over the river, he came over and said, let's go get some breakfast. He fed the hungry man. He was there in the emotional illness of that man's grief. And the man continues, I go to church now, my neighbor's church, a religion that can produce the kind of caring and love my neighbor showed me is something I want to find out more about. I want to love and be loved like that for the rest of my life. This was a very small and simple thing to do. And yet it left a remarkable impression on the man who received this gift of love. Righteousness loves the small. It's not worried about what's impressive in the eyes of the world because God's not worried about what's impressive in the eyes of the world. He's not impressed by it. Luke 16, Jesus says, what is exalted in the sight of man is an abomination to God. So what impresses you? What has significance in your eyes? When someone important or interesting walks into the room, do you have trouble paying attention to the person that you're talking with and inside you really want to go talk to that person? Or with children. It can be exhausting to be around children. Whether you work with them for your job, whether you're in the children's ministry, or, or whether you're working to raise a family, it is hard to always remember the utmost value that they have in the kingdom of God. And by the way, their value, it's not because they're cute. And this is no sentimental thing, because they're not always cute anyway. It's simply because they are small and needy, a very literal translation of the least. The small ones, they're small, and they can't help themselves yet. Take care of them, Jesus says. And Luther pointed out that all of those six ministries that we've been talking about, mentioned here in Matthew 25, they occur with regularity in every home. Let's think about it. Do you feed the hungry? Yes, I feed the hungry. They're hungry. Three times a day they eat, and even more. Do you give water to the thirsty? Yes, oftentimes in the middle of the night. Do you shelter them? Yes. Give them clothing? Yes, even when they grow three sizes in one winter. Do you tend to them when they're sick? Dr. Mom is still the most important physician on the planet. How about in prison? You bet. <laughs> Every time I put one of my kids in time out, I go and I visit them. We talk. So if you're a weary parent at the end of the day brushing your kid's teeth, just tell yourself, hey, I just brushed Jesus' teeth. Or if you're a Sunday school teacher working with the children of resurrection, and here it gets a little interesting. Can you really say, wow, I just taught Jesus about when Jesus walked up? I don't know how to answer that question. 
This regular ministry that happens in the home, those that are very near to us, it's not just with children. It's also for aging parents, siblings, spouses, particularly when they fall ill, extended family, neighbors, and I'm talking about the people who actually live adjacent to the home where you live, those kind of neighbors. In a globalized world, I like to remind us that you're not responsible for seven billion people, even though you might know things about them that you wouldn't have known 100 years ago. You're responsible for the neighbor next to you. Think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. The neighbor is still the person right in front of you who's in need. Next week, we're going to talk about our Advent gift for this year. So every year during Advent, we do a special gift to support our local mission ministries. And this year, we're supporting our mission that works with refugees. It's called the Good uh, Good Neighbor Ministry. And what we're doing is we're putting together these Good Neighbor Kits. A Good Neighbor Kit is when people from a church or a res group or a family uh, work through an agency called World Relief that sponsors refugees coming to America from war-torn and crisis-ridden places in the world. And it puts together a basic kit of what you need to start life in a new place when you've got nothing. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about. And he doesn't say you have to solve the immigration and the refugee crisis. He just says, welcome the stranger. If you do that once, if you do that at all, You understand the heart of Jesus. So we as a church have an opportunity to do that. What I love about this is we actually have two teams that are ongoing year-round that are building relationships with the family. So it's not just a one-off, we're going to give you this thing and walk away and feel good about ourselves. We're building relationships for a more sustainable effect. And of course, we receive from them as well. But I also love that if you don't have the time to be on a good neighbor team, you can still participate And so during this Advent, you'll be able to bring stuff, those basic physical human needs, and out of the love of your heart, give to the stranger and welcome them and fulfill the commandment. You could also get involved with our meals ministry. Small, simple. You're not going to get a lot of fanfare, but man, is that an important ministry. You can email Megan at churchres.org to figure out how you can take a meal to someone who's sick, just had a baby, or other th- or they have other needs, or even simpler than that, grab a college student or a few of them, and say, "Come over to my place after lunch or after church for lunch some Sunday." In fact, let's do it today. Why don't you come over today? Do you have time? Of course, they have time. Are they hungry? They're always hungry. <laughs> or grab a newcomer, somebody that you haven't seen before. Maybe they're new to resurrection, and say, "How about you?" Would you like to come to my house for lunch today? Because the newcomer is hungry also for something different. If you're in a res group, awesome. Now you know who are the least of these that you get to minister to. And go ahead and call them that. It'll, be, it'll build up your rapport. In fact, I just uh, had a few weeks ago, one of our families had a baby. And, and I texted to say, do you need me to come to a baby blessing? They said, actually, our, our res group leader came with a few others the night he was born. They're in the hospital with us, and they did a baby blessing. A couple days later, the whole rest of our res group came to our home and did another blessing. What more could I ask for? And I was crushed. (laughs) Actually, I was exulting. I was thrilled in my heart because that's exactly what we want res groups to be doing. The problem is not that we don't have needs all around us. 
These six ministries of feeding the hungry, giving water to the thirsty, welcoming the stranger, clothing the naked, visiting the sick and the prisoner, they're within the reach of every one of us. Different ones from time to time, but God is always putting people in our path to love. And I think the bigger question will be, do we see the needs? Do we see the significance of each person behind the need? And are we small enough to do the small thing? Or will we only be motivated to do deeds of righteousness if it will change the world? My generation, you know what I'm talking about. From the time we were this tall, since we were the small ones, what have we heard over and over and over again? You tell me, what have we heard? Change the world, make a difference. Change the world, make a difference. Change the world, make a difference. Over and over, and it's now put a weight on us that unless we do something of incredible worth that's going to take notice of the whole world, we are crushed and we feel we have no value. Well, if you're a Christian, you can break free from that yoke, that burden. You can be free to love the small. You don't have to change the world. It's small things with great love. And here we go. Back to Mother Teresa, because that was her mantra along with the other mantras. She had a lot of mantras. Do small things with great love. And you want to know what's incredible about Mother Teresa? Is she, she did actually change the world in a way that the world noticed. I mean, who of 20th century Christians had a greater impact for glorifying the name of Jesus than Mother Teresa? Maybe Billy Graham. I don't know how to choose between the two of them. I'm thankful they both had their ministries. But here's the interesting thing about Mother Teresa. She did not set out to do that. And all along the way, she would say over and over again, all I am doing is loving the person right in front of me. I'm not out to change the world. I'm to love the person right in front of me. We can do that. You can be like Mother Teresa. You can be like Jesus. The righteous will love the small and the needy because the righteous know, I too am small. I too am needy. Only the small and the insignificant will stop and care for the small and the insignificant. The righteous are those who know we were hungry, we were naked, we were sick and imprisoned, and Jesus came for us. When we were most needy, he came to us. He came for us. He came for me. And when you understand the love of God that he really does love me, he cares for me, little old me, Now I have the freedom to stop and care for others. The righteous will never lose sight of this fact. And we'll be so busy being filled with the love of God that we won't even think in terms of loving the least of these. It won't occur to us in the moment that that's what we're doing. We'll be like the sheep in the passage. When did we love you, Jesus? We'll say, when did we love the least of these? Because we won't even be thinking in terms of that label. We'll just be seeing a person in front of us who needs. And we have an opportunity to care for them and not think too much of ourselves as we do it just happy to show the love of Jesus. And at the end, we'll realize, oh my word, I I did love the least of these. I was faithful to that commandment. I loved Jesus in the, the small and the needy. So as we close today, may our desire be for righteousness. Let us each say to God without shame, without hesitancy, I want to be righteous. Make me righteous. I want to be righteous. And since righteousness, as we've said, comes from the love that we have for God and the love that we have for others, 
Let us approach the table today with perhaps this simple prayer in our hearts. God, would you purify my love? Purify my love for you. Purify my love for others. Let it be that simple. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As a part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.